Hello, everybody. This is Ravi Gupta. And in this special episode, we are talking to Richard Kallenberg, who we spoke to recently about the affirmative action decision at the Supreme Court. But we wanted to invite him back because he wrote this incredible book called Excluded, How Snob Zoning, NIMBYism, and Class Bias Build the Walls We Don't See. Richard is an incredible thinker. He's written so much about education, but as we'll talk about, education and housing are so inextricably linked. That's a word I have a hard time saying. Uh, and so he, we're going to talk all about the connection between those two and why we can't really solve for our education crisis in this country until we solve the housing crisis. Uh, we'll also dive into racial inequality and economic inequality and how those two can be coupled, but how the trends in those two areas might be heading in different directions. So uh, Richard is amazing. Um, we had a good time talking to him recently. And uh, in this conversation, we'll get it even deeper uh, with the benefit of a longer interview and a little bit of distance between us and that Supreme Court decision. So Richard, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be with you again, Robbie. Well, Richard, so you start your book by talking about how you, like me, like spend a lot of time talking about education and writing about education, thinking about education. But you basically write at the beginning of your book that you couldn't ignore the link between education and housing any longer. That's right. I start the book by talking about being in Charlotte, Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. I was working on a school integration policy there and felt good about the fact that kids of different backgrounds were going to have a chance to go to school together in the magnet program, so a small number of magnet programs. But in recognizing that the vast majority of students attend neighborhood public schools, 70, more than 70% in this country attend the public school closest to them, you know, the, the public school choice efforts I've been making to try to provide equal opportunity I think remain important, but they're limited. And so I wanted to get to the the core issue that underlies so many of our educational problems, which is that there are government policies in place that purposely segregate families by economic status and, and therefore by race as well. And these laws kind of, the, people uh, aren't paying enough attention to that problem. Yeah. And you talk about how, like very early on in your book, just to illustrate the sort of how strong the pull is for housing policy, you talk about uh, Montgomery County public schools and almost like an experiment that they did, um, or at least two really helpful pieces of data, two different interventions that illustrate just how powerful housing really is. You want to talk a little bit about what they learned? Sure. So Montgomery County, Maryland is right outside of Washington, D.C. It's got a lot of economic and racial diversity. It's a liberal county, and they try to do two things to improve academic achievement for, for low-income students and students of color. Uh, the first is kind of a traditional effort. They spend $2,000 extra per pupil in the higher poverty schools, which I think makes sense. They They spend it on good things like reducing class size in the early grades, better professional development for teachers, extended learning time, all, all things that I support. Uh, but then they have this second intervention. It's called inclusionary zoning, where when a builder develops a certain number of units, uh, he or she has to set aside a percentage of those units for people of modest means. So a researcher, Heather Schwartz, who is now at the RAND Corporation, 
was able to look at these two strategies and, and be able to, you know, able to test what works better, extra spending, c- compensatory spending for high poverty schools or integration, because some of the housing units, the low income housing units are located in pretty wealthy areas in Montgomery County. And uh, she found that over time, there was some positive effect for extra spending, and that's good. But the far more powerful intervention was giving low-income children a chance to live in economically integrated neighborhoods and attend economically integrated schools. Uh, And unfortunately, most of the policies that we have in America drive precisely against that because they you know, that, those zoning programs aren't inclusionary, they're, they're exclusionary and try to keep low-income people away from, from middle-class and upper-middle-class neighborhoods. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about what those policies look like. Like A lot of these are not even state-level policies. They're even more local than that. What are sort of like the key moves that cities, townships, counties make to uh, make it harder to build density and what are like, like if you interview these people, what kind of arguments are they making in favor of these policies? Are they explicitly just saying they want to keep out poor people or are they making like more sophisticated arguments? Most people are a little more clever than, than to explicitly say they're trying to exclude the poor, although some people will say that. Uh, I, I've certainly had readers who comment on articles that I've written say, you don't understand what poor people are like and we don't want to be anywhere near them. Uh, it was kind of interesting. I I don't think it would be acceptable to say that with respect to race these days, but people feel perfectly comfortable saying that with respect to to class. Uh, So the the primary tools used by uh, exclusionary communities are bans on multifamily housing. So they'll say, you're welcome into this community, but only if you can afford a detached single family home. Sometimes they'll double down on that and say, that single family home needs to be on a, a lot which has a minimum size of you know quarter acre, half an acre, uh, which makes the housing even more expensive. And anything less than a single family home. So, you know, even a duplex or a triplex, we're not talking about skyscrapers here, just modest sized apartments are banned. It's illegal to build those. And if you look at the history of exclusionary zoning, it it began with racial zoning. There was an effort to keep Black people out of certain communities in the early 20th century. When the Supreme Court struck that down, communities switched quickly switched to this economic zoning, exclusionary zoning, like single-family-only ordinances, which had the effect of excluding black pe- many Black people, and today, you know, sweeps up working-class people of, of all races. You asked me to say what, you know, what they what they would say to defend this. And uh, you hear a lot of different arguments. You'll say, well, we don't want our schools to be overcrowded. Uh, We're worried about too many people, meaning fighting over over parking spaces. Uh, We're worried about the aesthetics of having multifamily housing. And I'm not saying that these justifications are crazy. They're not. It's just that as we balance the question of how much we're going to dictate where people can live, we have to be considering uh, the arguments that defenders of the status quo provide, but also all the negative effects of exclusionary zoning, one of which is that it, it means that low-income kids are, are excluded from high-performing schools. But it also, you know, by limiting the supply of housing, just drives up housing prices artificially. 
uh, in this country, which is is reaching a you know a real crisis level. And you point out that this is you know it's not exclusively a liberal phenomenon, but it's pretty dominant on the left. Perhaps walk us through you know what evidence we have for that, but also the paradox of that, right? These are a lot of the same people who have the proud public school parent sign in their front yard. And I think it does beg the question as to what is a public school, right? Like some of these are quasi private schools kind of, right? Like they're exclusionary. People are buying into them. They're, you know, in some cases enforcing their right to these schools through the criminal justice system. People are being jailed. Uh, We've interviewed some of them, Kelly Williams Bowler being one of them who've tried to cross district lines and send their kids to uh, the quote unquote wrong school. So what, what evidence do we have that this is a liberal phenomenon? Well, we've got a lot of evidence. And I should say, you know, I consider myself a political liberal. So this was an upsetting uh, finding. But the researchers are, are quite clear on this. I mean, there's, there's pretty much of a consensus that the worst forms of exclusionary zoning are found on the East Coast between Washington, D.C. and Boston, on the West Coast, California, uh, you know, Washington State, some in Oregon, and that those are the most politically liberal areas of the country. Then there's even kind of more finely grained research that finds within California, there's worse exclusionary zoning often in uh, the more liberal communities compared to the less liberal communities. And I think the, the benign explanation for this is that, you know, liberals care about the environment. Uh, they care about uh, democracy. And so they want everyone to have say in how local governments are run. And that's those are good impulses. But they've they've really been weaponized by people who are very comfortable with excluding others and driving up the housing prices of other people, which increases their own property values. So I think that's the benign explanation. The, the, the less benign explanation is that increasingly liberals are highly educated in America. Uh, There's been an inversion between the Democratic and Republican Party, as you well know, uh, where Democrats were always the party in the working class, and now that's changed a lot. So uh, there is research that finds that more educated people, on the whole, are less racially prejudiced, which is a great thing, but they're more biased against people with less education. They actually dislike people with less education. And so there's been the argument uh, for a long time that if the cardinal sin of the right is racism, the cardinal sin of the left is is elitism. And I think we're seeing elitism on the liberal side manifested in, in zoning policies. Yeah. And these numbers are staggering. You write that in most American cities, Three quarters of residential land zoning laws prohibit the construction of multifamily units, which are duplexes, triplexes, apartment buildings. In some suburbs, it's illegal to build multifamily housing on nearly 100% of residential land. So uh, this is pretty significant. And I, you know, I've interacted with a lot of these people, and you know, and, and a good example is Nashville, Tennessee, right now, which is going through some version of what a lot of California towns went through in the past. And and essentially what's going on is it's a very attractive place to live. A lot of people are trying to live there. Housing prices are going way up. They had gone through this period of time of very permissive development. You know, it wasn't like Houston, right? So it wasn't like lots of multifamily units, et cetera, but it was more multifamily units than otherwise. And they, they allow accessory dwelling units, which are this 
kind of like middle ground, uh, which some people view as progress, et cetera. But now they're in the middle of a mayoral election where the biggest issue is the increased development, increased traffic, but also uh, paradoxically the lack of affordability. And I think what's fascinating is the progressives, by and large, are kind of anti-development at this point in Nashville. There are exceptions, but they're largely anti-development. And these are largely like white progressives who moved to the city who've moved people out of places like North Nashville and East Nashville, right? Like by, you know, basically economically, you know, made it untenable for people to stay who are largely renters in those neighborhoods. Uh, That's where I was a school principal. But there isn't like a connecting of the dots, right? Like people aren't being like, oh yeah, like if we shut down development of new housing, those people that we're pushing out don't have anywhere to go except out, right? Like I don't want to caricature it because there are some people who are saying that, but by and large, the liberal position is to be anti-development. How do we change that narrative? I've talked to Connor Doherty about this before. It's tough because it's like you're liberal, you're anti-developer, right? Like if you interview these people, they wouldn't say, I don't want the poor people here. They'd just be like, yeah, I I think the developers are corrupt and they're making it environmentally unsustainable. They're making the traffic worse, et cetera. They probably would pass a lie detector test saying that they don't have anything against the poor people, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, we can look to places where there has been positive reform, like like Minneapolis, and there the strategy was to try to convince liberals and Democrats who dominate the, the political situation in, in Minneapolis that they are real victims here. And the, the victims are people who normally liberals have a lot of compassion for. So instead of just having the same people show up at the meetings when they were discussing questions of zoning and the future of housing in Minneapolis, they made sure to reach out to the churches, different different communities, uh, disadvantaged communities, ask people what they were struggling with. And, and of course, affordability was a huge issue. They also talked to people who worked in labor unions and there were, there were workers who, at the hospital, in hospitals in Minneapolis, who would have to, t- you know, they, they had these horrible commutes where they'd have to take two buses and if they missed one connection, then they'd be late for work and get fired. And the reason is because Minneapolis had set aside more than 70% of its land for single family homes only. And so people have to live somewhere and, and they ended up living, people of modest means would live far out, outside of the community oftentimes. And that was, that was imposing real pain on real people. And I think that that's part of what what was effective in uh, in making bringing about change was was acknowledging or bringing to people's attention the fact that this is not an issue where the crime is victimless. I mean, there are people who are hurt uh, by exclusionary zoning. In my book, I talk a lot about some single mothers who, you know, they're they're low wage mothers, but they they have the the same values that conservatives would recognize. They'd want it better for their kids. They wanted a safe neighborhood, but they felt trapped because it was illegal for builders to provide the kind of housing that would be more affordable for them in safe neighborhoods with good schools. So I think that's the key here is, is raising awareness. I think a lot of the people in exclusionary communities probably went there because they wanted you know good public schools for their kids. And that's not a, I mean, that's a, that's a good impulse, uh, but I don't think they fully recognize that the zoning laws are causing a lot of harm to people. So I think a part of it is, is educating people about the process. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's ironic because you and I are kind of veterans of the school choice conversation. And when I when I talk to these people often um, who move to these exclusionary communities, some, uh, sometimes they're some of the most anti-charter school people you've ever met. And they, they with with no sense of irony, they say that they're against school choice. <laughs> Yet they've moved to these neighborhoods that are walled off. But, but a, a, a prominent charter school leader once said to me, because I was talking about like, what's the progressive position? Like what, what should be the sort of the ambitious, progressive, unifying message on an education? I said, well, we should take a look at neighborhood school boundaries, whether they're county lines, district lines, artificially created neighborhood lines. And we should start to weaken and undo those lines and allow kids to go to schools across neighborhoods you know, of different housing value. And he said to me, look, he's like, if you think that it was controversial to be pro-charter school, try making that point in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, the Upper East Side, Park Slope, East Nashville, you pick the neighborhood, uh, the people will be chasing after you with pitchforks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, I agree with that, that people who have a good deal right now like like it and want to keep it the way it is. But the flip side of that is there's there's just such an affordability crisis in this country that that there are growing political coalitions to bring about change. And in essence, in California and Oregon, you did have that strong NIMBY opposition from upper middle class neighborhoods, often, you know, ironically politically liberal neighborhoods, and yet they were outvoted. They were outvoted by those who are excluded, uh, th- that number of people is bigger. Now, usually in American politics, people who have resources and people you know, who have wealth tend to win. But this is one of those rare examples where the, the YIMBYs, the yes in my backyard folks, defeated the NIMBYs just because the, the situation had become of such crisis proportions that people are leaving California in droves because they can't afford to live there. People who want to move to California because they're, they're really good jobs there with high wages, they can't because the housing's unaffordable. And so the employers recognize that and they've gotten into the game and said, we've got to do something about NIMBYism and, and the, the you know, extremely exclusive zoning that is, is really killing the state. And so, so we are seeing reform. I, I, so I'll, I'll agree with you that there are a lot of political forces arrayed against this, but I think Things are beginning to change in this country. And when I started researching this book back in 2017, there weren't a whole lot of examples of success that I could point to. And now there are a growing, growing number of places where they are adopting reform, in part because even middle class people are being being hurt by these, these policies of exclusion. And so you mentioned Minneapolis, California, and you know we talked to Buffy Wicks and others who were super involved in that um, in the legislature. Uh, there's federal efforts, right? Cory Booker and Clyburn, I think, had an effort to uh, try to tie federal dollars to uh, incentives to loosen up these exclusionary zoning provisions, which actually became a hot button topic in the presidential election, which is interesting politics, right? So we've been beating up on liberals. It's worth mentioning that Trump seized on that sort of initiative because Biden supported it. And essentially did some old-fashioned suburban scaremongering, right? Yeah, yeah. No, he was he was tweeting to suburban housewives of America. That was his phrase. Uh, 
Biden is trying to, another phrase he used was abolish the suburbs, uh, hurt your property values, bring crime. And you remember that there was that gun-toting couple in, in St. Louis who uh, brought out their guns when Black Lives Matter folks were in the neighborhood. And they came to the convention and they talked about Second Amendment rights and everything. And that all kind of made sense. But all of a sudden they went off into exclusionary zoning. Yeah, you know, we need to preserve okay. single family zoning. So it's kind of this, this shameless uh, uh-huh. racial appeal and, and classist appeal. But it's interesting politically because at the same time, there's the traditional conservative position is anti-regulation uh, and a concern about property rights. And so the libertarian position is very much in favor of zoning reform. I don't want the government telling me what I can do with my own land. So I think this is one of those cases where there's there's a thread of equality and equal opportunity that are is going to appeal to well a lot of people like me who want better opportunities for kids and for parents. And then there's also an anti-government libertarian thread that's powerful uh, in American politics, which is why we see zoning reform in places like Montana. So I think you can pull on on both of those, but within each party there are these countervailing uh, forces. And so with there's the Trump folks who will demagogue the issue, uh, try to make it into a racial issue. And then on the left, uh, there are some, as, as we've been discussing, who want to preserve the status quo as well. So it's, it's not a classic liberal versus conservative issue. It's really appealing to the best traditions in both political parties to bring about change. Yeah, you know, no less than a liberal publication than the New York Times editorial board, I think said this is this is an, an unambiguous case of government being the problem. Like this is a this is a government created problem. Uh, obviously a government reflection of people and the flaws of people and the insecurities of people. Cause I, I I do think it's worth mentioning that the anxieties build on each other, right? So housing gets expensive, people buy into a neighborhood, the sacrifice of buying the right house becomes even more high stakes. So people start to cling to uh, the status quo even more because the cost of the status quo is so high, right? So like you've you've basically put you bet the farm on living in the right neighborhood, getting your kid to the right school. The premium on that is higher than it ever was before. So people get even more fierce and protective of that. So it really is building. Um, one thing I I do I I don't want to lose sight of is you have some interesting data in your book about how racial housing segregation has gone in one direction historically while economic housing segregation has gone in the other direction. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, you know, in 1968, we passed the Fair Housing Act, which was a huge advance for human freedom. And Black people who'd been excluded from lots of neighborhoods suddenly had access if they were middle or upper middle class and could afford to buy into a new neighborhood. And so racial, as a result, racial segregation between black and white people has declined by about 30% since 1970. It needs to decline further, to be clear. It's, it's still high, but the, the arrow is headed in the right, right direction. By contrast, we've seen during this period kind of a doubling down on exclusionary zoning, sometimes in reaction to the Fair Housing Act. You know, this was a way to circumvent the Fair Housing Act by putting more restrictions on housing. Uh, that weren't strictly racial in character, but economic in character. And so we've seen, as we've seen this decline by 30% in 
on racial segregation, we've seen income segregation double. And so Sean Reardon and others have found that the number of people who live in either very wealthy or very poor neighborhoods uh, has doubled. Uh, and those living in the middle, mixed income neighborhoods has really declined over time. Paint a picture for us of a of a truly mixed income neighborhood uh, that you found in your reporting and, and why people should embrace this. Yeah, well, we see some mixed income neighborhoods in, in gentrifying communities that remain stable. You brought up the issue in Nashville of, of gentrification. And oftentimes, not oftentimes, but sometimes, it can result in kind of a big flip where a neighborhood which had been low income becomes overwhelmingly wealthy. And we've seen that in parts of New York. But in other parts of New York, we've seen, and other parts of the country, we've seen a more gradual gentrification, which means that wealthy people, uh, wealthier people are moving into neighborhoods. uh, But when there is enough housing, you don't automatically get people who are forced out or displaced. And so I think that's the sweet spot is when we see an economic mixing. Now, is it easy? Not always. Sometimes the white families who move in are not particularly sensitive and are, um, you know, can be can be rude or racist, you know, call the police if the music's a little bit loud. And so I don't want to paint a, a picture of an idyllic picture. But having said that, you know, in communities which are mixed income, you can have people of all walks of life interacting with one another. There is a a more variety of of food types, um, more variety of retail. You could have laundromats and and some upscale retail opportunities. And when kids go to those public schools, they're able to to learn what life is really like and learn the beauty of, of, of difference and also of commonality. So I think that we now have enough of these examples of mixed income, mixed race communities throughout the country that that there is a picture one can paint of something better than either high poverty neighborhoods or homogenous upscale neighborhoods. Yeah. And, you know, one example of that is we, we interviewed, I don't know if you know Majora Carter over in Hunts Point in Bronx, but she she's been, she writes a lot about the concept of gentrification and kind of challenges conventional wisdom around it. But she'd been really fighting in her neighborhood of the Bronx to continue development, but have the community involved in the development, maintain uh, ownership of, of people who've been in the community for a long time while also embracing the change. And it's a, it's a really fascinating story. We'll have um, Mickey, our producer, dig up that interview and we can put that in the show notes because she's got a lot to say there. I visited her out there a couple of times and you know, and she's like very much involved in the redevelopment of that area. And that's another part of policy, right? Which is if paths to ownership, right? Because I think, you know, you quote Richard Rothstein and others uh, who I'd interviewed a long time ago about some of this stuff. And, you know, he does a good job, I think, of connecting the dots between housing policy and things like red zoning, restrictive covenants, all kinds of policy post-slavery that set Black Americans off on an unequal path that that plays out to this day. And I think like the answer could be like more paths to ownership. It's just so damn hard in this environment where interest rates are high, 
cost of housing is really high. Anything that connects race and home ownership or race and anything actually post affirmative action at this point, you know, we've done segments on it even since that decision is really hard. What do you think the answer there is? Like you go through a couple of different policies in your book, like everything from paying people to move wherever they want to move, which is controversial, but seems more effective than people realize to just increasing density as a whole, which will help not just black Americans, not just poor Americans, but like it, there's like a sense of like a, a trickle down is a you know phrase I probably don't want to use for this, but some some version of that. But what what do you think the most effective policies here are? So I've been working with Congressman Emanuel Cleaver, who's a Democrat in the House, on the idea of an Economic Fair Housing Act, which doesn't hit the third rail of race, as you're suggesting, can be a negative in trying to get policy through. Uh, instead, it's it's framed in terms of the low income and working class and sometimes middle class people who are discriminated against by exclusionary zoning policies. And so just as the Fair Housing Act gives the right to Black people and Hispanic people to, to sue if a community is using its laws to keep them out, uh, the Economic Fair Housing Act would provide the right uh, of plaintiffs who are excluded to sue and put the burden on the municipality to defend exactly why they need they need to ban all multifamily housing. I mean, places like like Scarsdale, New York, and Westchester County, it, you know, 0.2% of the housing is multifamily. Uh, now, I understand they may say this is important for the environment to reduce development and have a whole host of arguments, but I don't think in the end that will hold up in, in court. So the Economic Fair Housing Act would, would not say that single family zoning is illegal everywhere, but it would require a municipality to justify it. And then a judge would determine, is this policy necessary to advance the purported objectives? Or is there another way to try to uh, to get those objectives across. And it, the concept builds on these coalitions in Oregon and California, which were bipartisan and essentially class-based, where Republican rural legislators who were uh, representing white working class people allied with Democrats who were representing Black and Hispanic communities in urban areas to say enough, we're sick of the prices of homes being artificially inflated, and we're we're sick of exclusive communities essentially looking down on all of us and saying we don't want you in our community. In Scarsdale, uh, there's a community right nearby, about seven or eight miles away, Portchester, where a lot of the residents are Hispanic and and uh, working class, and they spend a, a lot of their time mowing the lawns in, in places like Scarsdale, providing the daycare. Some of them are teachers in, in schools in neighboring communities. So they're good enough to do those things in exclusive communities, but they're not seen as good enough to live there. And, and there's something fundamentally un-American about that. This is uh, your dream of resurrecting Bobby Kennedy's vision of uniting lower income Americans across uh, the racial divide. Bobby Sr., I should add at this point in 2023, important to mention. One that you mentioned in your book, you talk about how 
Barack Obama himself, I, you, you quote this interview he did, I think in 2015 with Robert Putnam, where Obama makes a similar argument. He actually repeated that in an interview with Crooked Media not too long ago, where he talked about how we really need to appeal to people on class, on the on sort of the level of class. I, I, you know, I don't always love the word class, but like income, you know, like th- this is, because like this, this gets to what you and I are talking about post the affirmative action decision. The people who are truly suffering in a neighborhood like North Nashville, where I used to serve my kids, are poor kids. And they will benefit from policies that get at like, you know, whether it's an economic affirmative action or an economic housing policy. And actually they they may benefit better. I know this is a lot of the work that you've done. They may benefit more than a policy where universities are able to meet their metrics by just fiddling around with which elite gets into their school, but never really in a weird way, it mirrors the housing, right? Like what Harvard was doing, which is kind of rearranging the deck chairs for the elite, is kind of what's happening on the housing front, which is the elite are clustering together and they're becoming more progressive in the sense of elite society is more comfortable rubbing elbows with people of different races and ethnic backgrounds, but not uh, more comfortable with rubbing elbows with people who have different education levels or economic uh, or come from different economic levels. Absolutely. That's the through line in these these approaches. And I did my thesis in college back on uh, back in 1985 on Bobby Kennedy's campaign when he brought together working class people of all races, black people, Hispanic people, and even some former George Wallace supporters. I mean, really um, an, an unusual coalition. And he did it by saying, you're all getting a raw deal. And you ought to put aside the efforts to divide you by race and think about what you what you have in common. And that's what's happening with some of the zoning reform in different states uh, where working class people are aligned together. And, and the same thing has happened with affirmative action, where in Texas, it was working class white Republicans who allied with working class black and Hispanic legislators to come up with the top 10% plan, which said kids who had never got had a chance to go to UT Austin, if they're in the top 10% of their high school, they're good enough. And that policy has worked really well. It's been a durable political coalition. So we see inklings of it in housing policy and, and affirmative action uh, and some other arenas. But the rule in American politics has been more that people vote their their race as opposed to their class. And to my mind, that's that's deeply problematic. I think it's problematic in terms of being able to bring about political change and bringing about more equality in the country. I think it's also bad for social cohesion because if you have two groups, uh, you know, working class people are struggling of all races, uh, people of color who are working class and white people are working class, and uh, they're frustrated. That is is a recipe for great division in the country. And Bobby Kennedy brought them together. And I think the right politician with the right policies could do so again. Yeah, you you talk about how in chapter four, you talk about how there's like community in Wisconsin, which basically groups together wealthy white people who use exclusionary zoning to keep their community 
uh, economically homogenous, which in that case keeps it racially homogenous as well. And then you have Prince George's County in Maryland, uh, which is a black community um, that uses exclusionary zoning to uh, keep out lower income African-Americans. What did you learn from sort of like the, the sort of way those two different communities uh, mirror each other in certain ways? Well, that this issue is more complicated than race. Uh, I mean, clearly, race is a factor in some of these policies. There are there are people who want to exclude black and Hispanics. There are white people who want to do that. So I don't want to deny that that exists. But the fact that upper middle class black people are using the same exclusionary zoning policies to keep out lower income black people and upper middle class white people are doing it to their lower in, to people who are lower income whites suggests that that fundamentally this is is an issue of class and we don't have the tools to treat it as such we have the fair housing act which de- deals with racial discrimination as we should but we need a parallel set of policies not to replace the fair housing act but to supplement the fair housing act that deal with what i think is increasingly the problem which is is class bias the winners in meritocracy who are trying to exclude those who've been been less successful in our meritocracy. And that comes back to the fact that this isn't partisan. This is, this is fundamentally an issue of, of those who want to exclude versus those who are, are on the outside and want better for their families. Yeah, this feels like the answer in some ways for this is sort of this is the, this is the political answer for whichever side gets this right. And I think like to the extent, you know, Trump has been wrong on some of this stuff for sure. We pointed out um, at least one of the ways he's been wrong, but I think he does get class resentment at its core. Now he, he sprinkles in racial resentment, which I think limits his coalition, which is why he's lost his election, his last few elections, whether when he's on the ballot or other people running his name, it limits him. Right. But the, the party getting back to Bobby Kennedy and why Obama is probably uh, talking about this is, you know, and I was an Obama guy, I worked on that campaign. I think what we got wrong was class, right? He did talk about class and all that, but Obama, by his nature, reeked of the meritocracy, and so do, so do I. Like I'm come, you know, I have my own small version of what he went through, which is raised by a single mom, went to an Ivy League school, and kind of thinks and acts like those people, hangs out with those people, right? Obama can never shake that, right? And the party became that in many ways. And I think Trump, you know, seized on this, you know, like he, he seized on it. And I think if, if Democrats progressives want a way out of this, they've got to sacrifice a little bit of this sort of suburban politics that they play, right? Like everything's about the suburbs now. It's about winning that, that, and it makes electoral sense, right? Like every election, there are a few thousand votes here and there in Maricopa County, or in you know out the outs you know Buck County uh, Pennsylvania or whatever like I get it I totally get it and I get the risk of uh, rolling the dice on a new strategy but my sense is the most effective progressives uh, of the future are gonna they're gonna get this story right and perhaps they can do it in a way like in Minneapolis that you talk about where they can bring along progressives, right? And maybe like the hardest part is bringing along those independents in the suburbs, right? Because those are the people who have the most, they think, to lose from 
loosening things up and opening up development. And it's not just housing development, right? It's how it's schools, it's taxation policy. It's, it, it's a lot of things. But is there any politician out there that you've seen that you're like, okay, this person, they're on to something in terms of their message. It could be on either side of the aisle. Well, I've always had a, a soft spot for Sherrod Brown in Ohio, and it'll be interesting to see whether he he continues to be able to hold on to working class people of all races. But he he has an affect and uh, ad- advances a set of policies that are are definitely progressive, but not off putting to working class white people. And I'll have to say that on his best days, Barack Obama did that as well. I mean, he did much better among working class white people than either uh, Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden did. So he was, he understood, uh, he had inklings of understanding these class issues. I mean, he talked about class segregation uh, with Robert Putnam. He also, in the context of affirmative action, said uh, that his daughters did not deserve a preference in admissions and that working class people of all races did. Now, when it came to policy, he ended up kind of going along with the party line. But I think Obama, more than a lot of politicians understand, understood class and understands class. Well, one area, and and I was in Iowa during the primary in 2007, 2008, as you were talking about this, because I was on my mind lately because of the GOP primary, I was like, I vaguely remember us not just winning the primary, but winning the general election. I just looked it up. These numbers are crazy by today's standards. So Obama won the general election in Iowa by a 9.5% margin of victory. (laughs) That's crazy by today's standards. That's wild. I had forgotten it was by that big of a margin. Yeah, I had as well, but he, he wouldn't have won. Uh, without working class voters, uh, working class white voters, as well as working class black and Hispanic voters. He's less policy though, right? It was his speech, right? Like for him, it was the story, like, you know, that that speech in Philadelphia about his grandmother, right? Like the sense that he showed a generosity of spirit and really his whole campaign, even though he was the first black president, his whole campaign was about rising above our racial and ethnic identities and most of our identities and trying to find that commonality, right? Like, Absolutely. like uh, I went to the Obama summit right after he left office and he opened the summit. This is like prime time for racial division within the Democratic Party. Uh, and he said at the beginning of his, of this um, summit, he said, look, look around. He's like, we're going to be in breakout groups if you start your sentences with as a Indian man, as a black woman, as a Latina woman, um, you don't understand me. He's like, then you're in the wrong place. Wow. And I was like, wow, like this is like, this was foreign within the Democratic Party at that point, even though he had just left office. So like, it was always part of his storytelling. Like I'm with you though, like the policy never quite got there. I have my theories. I do think the economic crisis really cornered him when he was like got people like Larry Summers around him. I think he wound up like clinging to the experts he had around him very much like the way Bush did in the Iraq war. Like I have this theory that like if Dick Cheney and Rumsfeld aren't around him and it's Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice, you might be living in a different world. I feel that way about Obama. Like if he had, if he had a slightly different cast of characters around him, maybe that would have been different, but I, I, I don't know. I think that's right. And, and obviously, you know, his, he launched into the, to the national consciousness on there is no black America, there is no white America, there's the United States of America. 
And that's what was always so powerful uh, behind his message. It was a healing message, not an identitarian message. And that, that is not the central theme of, of, uh, of liberals today. I mean, Marcy Kaptur, the congresswoman, said that, uh, you know, if you look at where people, you know, at the, the economic status of the different congressional districts, she said, how did we get to the point where Republicans are representing the people who struggle in America? Uh, you know, this inversion, this class inversion uh, is deeply problematic. And Rui Teixeira uh, has, has done a lot of important writing about how, just as a matter of political math, it's not just, obviously, it's not just winning a majority. You need to win the Electoral College and you need to win Senate seats. And for that reason, you cannot ignore white working class voters. You have to find ways to, to unite them. Well, also, like communities of color aren't single issue voters, right? It's like it, it helps explain. And, and Marie's done some work on this, too, as it relates to Hispanic voters. But the same is true of Asian-American voters. I think there's this sense among white, some white liberals, because I don't want to paint this. I don't want to make the same sin here. But there's certain powerful factions within the Democratic Party and, and progressive circles that think that, well, OK, Hispanics, immigration is their issue. And like, and then you go down the list and you're like, well, okay, first of all, not everybody has the same opinion about those issues uh, within those communities, but they're not the only, if there are people like anybody else, they care about housing, they care about healthcare, they claim they, small businesses, right? And this is a big area. I went down to Pennsylvania ahead of these midterms and I, what I kept hearing from Hispanic immigrants um, who had who often were entrepreneurs was, hey, I'm a little worried about my taxes. I'm worried about regulation on my small businesses. Yet all they want to talk about is immigration uh, to me. And I'm like, well, yeah, like I might even be with them on immigration, but as a business owner, not as an yes, immigrant. Yes. Like I'm here. Like I, yet the only thing you're saying about immigration that I care about is can I get workers? Right. Yes. No, <laughs> it's, it's, very, it's very patronizing. And, and it misses the fact that among any racial group, it's there's such a such a mix. I mean, when I was interviewing low wage mothers of color for the book, they would say things that would strike many people as as deeply conservative about crime, about uh, the need to to work hard in school. I mean, they they said things that uh, I think you hear in the in the black barber shop that uh, do not comport with what upper middle class highly educated white liberals would expect. And, and people are complicated, and, and, and yet our politics has not, uh, has not kept up with that. I, I think Trump was so successful because he was just signaling to communities that hadn't been recognized that they were heard. And, rec and he, uh, you know, he did it for, in my view, nefarious reasons and, and, and made terrible appeals in many cases. But you have to give him some credit for saying, I hear you. I understand you're you're struggling, and I recognize you. And that's what uh, that's what Bobby Kennedy did. And I think we need to to restore that that type of politics. And taking on issues like exclusionary zoning, I believe, does that. It's a recognition that uh, there are kind of elite communities that are condescending to others, and when we're going to do something about it. And there are there's just an exciting potential to bring together some people who've been been divided in, in American politics for so long. 
Well, Richard, thank you so much. Uh, this is uh, super enlightening. Everybody go out there and get this book. It's called Excluded, How Snob Zoning, NIMBYism, and Class Bias Build the Walls We Don't See. Now you'll see those walls after this podcast, especially after you read that book. Richard, thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Robbie.